We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Okay, uh, welcome to uh, our latest podcast. Um, I've got three people here with me discussing um, the politics of the city and the regions, I guess would be a good way of summing this up. Um, so, joining me is Deckers. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Matt. Hello. And Eva. Hello. We have some varied regional and urban perspectives in the room, which we'll uh, get into over the show. But uh, yeah, I'm going to pass it back to Deckers now to kick us off. Or Matt. What basically happened is that uh, Declan lent me David Harvey's book, Rebel Cities, uh, which, as its thesis, it's about the way that uh, radical leftist and socialist movements evolve in cities. Uh, cities are in many ways the natural ground for these kind of movements. Um, and how that seems to be a fairly consistent pattern around the world and through the history of like the left, going back to stuff like the... Even like the, the Paris Commune and like the revolutions of 1848, like these were uprisings of the radical working class in the major cities of Europe um, where they were able to like actually seize and hold territory within the cities. Uh, that was the place where... It, they seem to be the place where there's the most natural constituency for left movements, the place where it's easiest to build a left movement where you have people who will immediately like of their own free will come out in large numbers for a left movement um and it's much easier once you've got that grounding to start building a socialist project and if you look at the world that we have now and you look at where the biggest concentrations of the left are that seem that pattern seems to still hold so we've got um in america i think the most um kind of left-leaning places of the major cities like New York, uh, I think San Francisco, that's the places where they're electing these really progressive candidates. Um, in the UK, I think the only remaining really deep red, deep labour seats are in the major cities. Um, like Places like London and Liverpool are still very deep red and still are willing to elect radical and progressive candidates even when almost nobody else will um and i think here as well um we're doing you know the uh greens here in brisbane are running in the center of the city um we've got the west end neighborhood here which has the most the biggest concentration of progressive voters and of uh, very left-leaning people and then we've got in sydney and melbourne as well as the inner city seats where they've been capable of electing socialists or greens or different kinds of like the Victorian socialists in Melbourne, I think they pick up their votes in the inner city as well. And so there's clearly something about the city that makes it a very fertile ground for these left movements and means that they, um, these areas are the ones that sort of lead the way. But it also means, and this pattern is holding true uh, around the English-speaking world at least as well, that in the regional areas, in the... Um, whether that be small towns or like agricultural areas or even like smaller cities that are not these kind of major centers. Um, and to some extent that's true of Brisbane as well, not being really like being a kind of third city of Australia, not being Sydney or Melbourne. Um, they tend to be more conservative and the left hasn't been able to make inroads into those areas as effectively. And so I wanted to talk a little bit more about why we think that is, like what's going on there um, and what we think it is about the city that makes them so conducive to the left, what we can kind of do with that, and then also how we can perhaps reach these uh, like more rural and regional areas as well. I was having a bit of a think about like why it is that people can be like that that there is this like part of radicalism that happens in the city. And one of the factors that I was really starting to, to happen on outside of this kind of, I think that there's, there's a lot of stuff written about the very material kind of realities of cities as kind of the centers of capital accumulation. And I might get into that later, but I thought anonymity was a really 
interesting difference between cities and the regions and the way that kind of functions where I think like in our in a lot of the people here's kind of experience of doing like this radical left politics one of the things that we do a lot is door knock but I've definitely I hate the idea of door knocking my own street and I had to do it once and it felt really really uncomfortable like deeply deeply uncomfortable and I think that like there's obviously something about being able to to participate in a group of people who all believe in the same politics but are still anonymous in doing that and so you don't have to have you don't have to you you're not confessing to part of it like a deep knit community what sort of tensions there are in the various politics that sit there you're just participating in what you believe in outside of that and I think that's a really important kind of factor yeah um totally and that's something that's actually kind of um crossed my mind when I've thought about the fact that um I can see that there's so much potential in building some sort of like really exciting class-based politics um, in regional parts of the country based on some of like the experiences I think we've had like door knocking and talking to people out and about like in more um, outer suburban areas and just the way that there is like so much fertile ground for the sort of politics that we've been talking about here and um, I grew up in a, a regional town in northern New South Wales that's like um dealing with a lot of stuff like really high unemployment and uh, really unaffordable housing and a lot of the issues that, um, you know, uh, the sort of things that kind of fuel uh, my political involvement up here. And that is definitely a factor around anonymity because um, I've often thought about like, you know, if I was to, you know, return back to my hometown in like 10 years and, um, you know, get involved in some sort of political thing, kick off a campaign down there. um, The fact that you can't really go to Coles without just seeing like so many people you know and like every second door you'd knock on would be like someone who either taught you at school or like something else um is yeah I think presents a really interesting opportunity to like yeah there's a lot we could do um in those sorts of areas but yeah you definitely don't have that same factor of you know endless um kind of doors to knock on where there's people you might have never met before yeah it's like like when I've gone door knocking here in um, like West End and the surrounding suburbs, it, there's this very kind of transformative sense of like, it makes you feel very differently about like the space of the city. I feel like I'm the only, I think, person here who's never lived outside a major city. So I don't have that experience to compare it to. But yeah, this process of door knocking, I mean, I I found that it made the city streets like a lot less anonymous to some extent. You're just walking down a street, you're knocking on every door, you're talking to, like, you're getting a really kind of systematic look at the kind of people who live there. Yeah, and I think something that, like, I've really felt is that the city's become a less anonymous space as I've picked up a lot of the skills of door knocking. Like, now, like, in West End or my girlfriend's living in in Newstead at the moment, I'm much better at striking up intermittent conversations with people and, and forming, like, friendly relationships with, like, shopkeepers and stuff like that. So I think that that's... That's interesting as well. But I guess I think what's what really makes the city kind of function as a place of socialist politics right now is is the way that the city is functioning as this like this space of capital realization. Um, and I think one of the really interesting things that Harvey focuses on a lot is this this idea that like obviously in the labor process is where, um, surplus value is, is like is taken away from from workers when they're paid less than you know less than the value of the work that they do is for the capitalist, but then that surplus value is is kind of shifted off into all these different factions of capital. You know, there's there's someone who brings it to market. There's someone who who provides the finance. There's the the rent seekers and stuff like that. And I think one of the really interesting kind of things that's happening at the moment and has been happening over the last you know thirty or forty years with neoliberalism and financialization is endless money has been produced and production is is really ceasing to be the the site where most profit is realized obviously it's it's where value is extracted but profit is being realized increasingly in the city um, and that means that people's experience of the city is one where we're seeing you know more and more of these these massive glass towers but less and less space for us to be able to afford to to have friends over and have a drink or um, 
or, or even, you know, just sit down in the sun and have, have a chat with a stranger outside or a, stra- a chat with a friend outside and stuff like that. All these things are becoming increasingly commodified through, you know, having to buy a coffee to sit down outside or rent just being like a, an increasingly intense stressor in people's lives. And I think that is part of what's happening with this constituency that's that's developing a socialist politics in cities right now. Um, so is that what like the uh, the right to the city idea is about? Is about saying like, let's claim like, let's reclaim this city, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I, the right to the city is is really interesting, and I think it it kind of focuses on the idea that cities are really interesting and inherently political spaces. Um, recently, I've been reading a really really excellent um 1960s like complete urban history which starts very much with the guy kind of like presupposing like what 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 cities were what even like what habitations were before people even cease being nomadic um and one of the really interesting things that he starts talking about is is the first cities were very much these very religious spaces and the the role that walls played in in like the religious architecture of the city and how much that was a part of making the the kind of god king like such a central part of like what animated the city and what animated the civilization so i think cities have always been really 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 political um and what the right to the city is as an idea and it came out of those those 60s protests in france that you were talking about before is saying that the city itself isn't created by like any sort of directive animus like it, it's just kind of come come about through the collective fun like all these accidental functionings of all these all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people over generations and what it means is that the city itself is not really anybody's it belongs to it belongs to the community but the the value that's then extracted from that is is not something that is co- able to be collectively achieved that that value is extracted by you know by capital with generally with a lot of help from from governments as well so the right to the city is about laying a claim to the value the collective value that the city is and and i guess laying a claim to therefore the ability to collectively direct what that what that value should be used toward and how it should be used so like i don't know how do you see that right to the city stuff playing out in context and i think i mean especially in like the kind of Brisbane context, one of the main tensions that emerged was like the relationship between, you know, being asserting a right to the city, but also being a settler colonial state. Like, you know, can you say that you have a, a right to the city when, you know, we all it is kind of essentially stolen land? Like how do, you know, I, I actually don't think that's an irresolvable tension, but it is a tension that it's worth talking about. Yeah, it's absolutely a tension. Um, and I think it kind of comes from, from different kind of, understanding of how we talk about rights um and i'm a big fan of that um i've only heard, only read it in in harvey's writing but i, th- I think he, he attributes it to marx and i haven't read marx properly sorry about that everybody um Ooh. but uh, <laughs> get out get out of here <laughs> but i think one of the things most he's, of the people who say they have are probably lying yeah so. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and i've never done it at all so fuck everyone um <laughs> Uh, between equal rights, force decides, and yeah. by by this, I'm not trying to say that I think that um, that settler colonial project was just and right, but I do think it kind of there is a discourse where rights are kind of understood to be something inherent that was kind of granted from on high, as opposed to something that have been fought for and won, and and that's what I that that is how I understand rights, and I think what the right to the city is, it's 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 I guess a program very much about asserting a collective right to the city. And I think that means that we actually get to decide what that right is. In the settler colonial context, I think that means treaty f- treaty first and very importantly. And and it obviously has to come out in the wash. You know, we're, I think we're a pretty significant distance from claiming a genuine, like, collectivist city. Um, but what that, what that means and what... what mob in Brisbane kind of what their role is in asserting what their own rights in that kind of collective framework is is yeah yet to be decided Mm. yeah no I think that's a a really good point I think one of the key aspects of movements for urban justice is that they are um prefigurative in a way or that I don't know if that's really the right word I'm looking for but that 
programmatic maybe yeah like they come about through doing basically (laughs) um which i think is quite suited to kind of the mode of of urban life like it's you know it is as you say like a um this you know the city comes about through all these different sort of coincidences and overlapping circumstances so it's it's a site of like activity rather than um you know pre-programmed to do x y and z yeah which i know you were talking about like what sorts of things would would be like would make a socialist city like what sorts of things should be one and we've like there's all all the sort of like activities that right to the city kind of activists get up to all over the world and that's like i think a lot of the advertising blackout stuff would fit into that category but there's also heaps of like you know tenants unions struggles and things like that but what sorts of things should a city have as a socialist city do you think um yeah, I think a lot about uh, housing has always struck me as being there's really basic things that are just like the premises of living in a city um, and housing being kind of the most important one because it's it's like you, it, it's just a really basic rule of like what spaces are you allowed to be in and what spaces are you not allowed to be in, um, which structures literally like you know every single thing that we do is our sense of what's private space and what's public space and if you're barred from accessing certain spaces that has a massive impact on your ability to like lead your daily life this Um, is completely not what you're talking about but it just reminded me of i mean you guys are probably all sick of hearing me tell a story but listeners haven't heard it yet i recently was in a dispute with my landlord that um basically was over whether or not we could put furniture like lawn furniture on in the garden um and the the real estate kept saying well you know you rent the flat you because we live in a flat a subdivided house you rent your flat not the common area the common area belongs to the landlord and he can do what he want with wants with it and it's just like well if you take that argument to his logical conclusion he could have me arrested for trespassing for being in the garden like if that's his property and i have no right to it isn't the key word there like common like a, a common space well like, you know, you know listeners will anyone be- can yeah. kind of participate in and yeah listeners will be happy to know that they backed down um they threatened us with the with the body corporate act 1997 but a close reading of the bylaws on my part proved that they had no no case to stand on um but yeah anyway but i think that's a good point matt like i I, like the way this is a very tiny example obviously but i think the way like renting in particular is structured um is completely fucked and yeah like shrinks people's um avail like what they can do basically how they can exist in the world down to like the smallest possible square footage the thing about renting is it's not optional you like you have to have a space to live in or you're homeless in which case like you're even more subject to like the constant policing of the kind of space you're allowed to be in which gives the people who own the land um a huge and terrifying amount of power Yeah, um, I think that might be one kind of common thread um, amongst all our experiences, like those of us who grew up in the city and those of us who grew uh, grew up in regional towns like I did and um, is really just kind of the lack of affordable housing and uh, all the constraints around really just trying to get a roof over your head. I think um, I do sometimes, yeah, think about if I was going to kick off a campaign <laughs> returning back to my hometown in the future. Like, Sounds like a plot of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I just, I think um, at some point or another, it's, it's going to need to happen. We're going to need to, um, yeah, kind of extend the political proje- project that's happening in the cities to to the regions um, to kind of, you know, build the sort of world we want to build. And I think housing is one of those common threads where, you know, especially in regional areas, um, the lack of affordable housing is an absolutely huge issue. Um, and that's, a, you know, experience that um, many of us would have kind of struggled with, but also like in particular, um, the part of the world that I'm from, um, the Tweed, is actually like amongst the least affordable areas in the whole of New South Wales. And um, I had a bit of a look online and um, found out that actually the social housing rate in that area is like half of what it is in the overall like average for the state. Um, And, you know, we know it's pretty bad in the city, but when you kind of look to these regional areas, it's like, yeah, if you were going to kick off a campaign, like that common experience of, um, you know, especially with uh, things like the major floods that happen out in the regional areas, um, uh, 
campaign around housing is definitely like somewhere I would I would kind of look to begin to to find that common ground. I was going to say I know Byron has a massive housing problem because yeah. it has some incredibly rich people um and then a lot of people who are not incredibly rich. Yeah, and a lot of the houses there are basically now Airbnbs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're not essentially being issue. used as housing. And one of the super interesting things that's happened, I think that's made like that that causes this is it's kind of gentrification, which is like kind of typically thought of as as an urban phenomena, but it's extending to the regions in these really interesting ways. Where like because it happened to my town, I left Mullaney which is about an hour north of Brisbane. When I grew up, it was a dairy farming and cult town. Um, <laughs> but now it's like... Main a- industry, dairy farming and cults. <laughs> yeah, no, really. Um, yeah, growing up, my friends were like the son of the the guy who spent some time but was eventually found acquitted of committing the Hilton bombing in Sydney, oh. um, which was part of a religious cult, the Ananda Marga. Mulaney's claim to fame. <laughs> Mulaney's one and most important claim to fame. <laughs> uh, that and racist milk. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait, ra- racist milk? Yeah, the Millennium Dairy's milk is apparently quite racist. Oh, no, that's, a, that's a shame. They came out in support of Pauline, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. And I was chatting to my mum about it as well. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, notorious racist. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> They've got a fish on the milk as well. <laughs> that is one of my, like, like the, um, I don't know, secret things that I like about Brisbane is there's a lot of cults. Like, I feel like there's a higher density of cults just, like, in the area. In in Brisbane? Well, like, not really just in Brisbane, like, in the kind of... In the surrounding. Surrounding Palace. areas. Yeah. In the periphery. But, like, I feel like I've had more engagement with cults than I might have, like, if I'd grown up in Sydney. Either? I don't know. I'd... Now's your chance to tell us about the cults. Oh. <laughs> well, now that we're talking about cults. Um, yeah, well, I mean, uh, the town that, that I'm from um, in regional northern New South Wales, it's called Mawulambar, and it's often confused for Malulabar, but it is a different place. Um, is Yeah, it's this little kind of like rid- ridiculously um, gorgeous, hilly, leafy town, um, but it's got like one set of streetlights. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I have like a list here of some of the different cults in my town. Um <laughs> So it's I, I don't know how I would go about building like a socialist campaign um, around these particular kind of groups, but hey, it could happen. Um, we have uh, a Masonic hall, so there's Freemasons in this tiny town of like nine thousand people. Freemasons there's, are everywhere, yeah, everywhere. <laughs> I that had, is a defining factor of being a Freemason. <laughs> Be um, everywhere. So we have the Freemasons. Um, Mawulamba also has like a really significant community of Hare Krishnas uh, that have like this large ashram that's just on the outskirts of town. Um, I also recently went on like a bit of a deep dive um, just thinking about my experience like living, growing up in a regional town. Um, And it just seems entirely normal when you're growing up for whatever reason. But there's this like boutique um, on the corner of like the one main street in the whole town um, owned by these folks called the Water People. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of the Water People before. Water People. (laughs) So it's just one of those things like just kind of walking down Main Street, like, you know, you kind of walk past, you go, oh yeah, it's like the water people shop. Um, (laughs) I actually looked it up and did some further research like for this and um, found out a little bit more about them. So um, the the technical name for them is uh, they're like a sect and they're called the Hermes Far Eastern Shining. Is what they're called. Fuck yeah. Um, and this group... That's the name of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Hard pivot to, to cults. Um, but yeah, so these folks, they believe uh, that their leader, whose name he's like an old man named Gerald Attrell, um, they believe he is an alchemist and uh, Jesus Christ incarnate and that he can actually bless water. And that's where the water people thing comes from. Um and they all get like an alchemy name, and uh, what are their alchemy names? Yeah. Oh no, I've I've got them. Don't worry. So, <laughs> uh, Gerald's alchemy name is Jessa. Oh my heart. Three words, uh, which I really enjoyed. And then I um I went a little bit further into into researching what they're actually about. And basically, uh, Jessa. Oh my heart's deal is that um he believes he can empower water products, which they then sell in these boutiques. Um, I have door knocks. No, I've street no knocked way. someone next to Aldi in West End who was 100% in on this. Whoa. <laughs> it all what connects. This is what I'm saying. Business full of cults. <laughs> Yeah, but um, I guess just to oh, amazing to kind of wrap that up, um, <laughs> this dude is actually selling these products for like between uh, thirty dollars and thirty thousand dollars each. So just to be um, clear, it's like a bottle of water. 
that he's also, blessed. Also, water-based products. I don't know. Like, I, I couldn't really water-based find out. Water-based products mean, could mean a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find out specifically, but it was just one of those moments where it's like, I can't believe I, I never looked into this before. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this guy, Gerald, he's like, um, I have a note here that he's yeah way ahead of the game on water-based grifts and the Gamer Girl bathwater. People really need to step up their game. It's <laughs> like these folks are getting like 30 grand a pop for like blessed water. And I thought that's, that was it amazing. It's a really solid, just basic grift is just selling water that's been empowered or bathed in or yeah. just leveled up in some way. That's a really good just baseline. Like it's water, it's cheap, it's free, it's magic. Like how Such much can you get for this move, water? Honestly. Um, and on the last note on that, uh, I also found in that article that his wife's name is three words, show me seven showers, which I also really enjoyed. I like that um, But yeah, quite, quite an Sounds interesting... Like a, like a niche Pornhub category. Seven showers. <laughs> I thought so too. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely, I think, a common experience across Mulaney and Moolambar is yeah. this just strange culmination of various sects and cults in, yeah. in a small area. I, there's two more cults. A friend of mine's mother's been involved with a couple of cults in that, like in that area. And one, I can't remember the name of, but I think it was... I think it turned out to be like not good, like a bit of a sex cult kind of thing. But the other cult was great. No, but no, but the <laughs> other ones, the other ones with the Raelians, and the Raelians are relatively harmless. Um, what are they about? Um, it's very much like you know when like intelligent design was like had a real crack at evolution, like <laughs> around a decade ago. Maybe not, but like I don't know. Uh, we had we had yeah, like we had like set. some teachers show us a like intelligent design documentary at school <laughs> like i do not remember that <laughs> it was wild maybe um, just a Mulaney thing <laughs> no this is in this, oh, this is, is in, intro, in the city yeah, Brisbane. <laughs> um but yeah the Raelians are just like oh you know obviously evolution couldn't have happened but it wasn't god aliens made us the Raelians, oh, the Raelians will come the again Raelians, yes yeah, where, yeah, yeah. I where did the aliens this. come from Look, they never get into that. (laughs) (laughs) And and, yeah, there was like a notorious Raelians driving around, like a Raelian van in West End. Yes, I was going to ask if it was that guy. Yeah, 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 that's them. But I think one of the interesting things in Mulaney as well is like, because there's the, the Ananda Margas um, have got like a pretty sizable religious commune there um, that was built with the money that one of them got after being released from prison for about a decade when they were like, oh, look, turns out you probably didn't bomb the Sydney Hotel in Hilton, like the Sydney Hilton. Uh, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> that was really good for me because I um, I had a couple of friends who lived who lived there as well. So, like, me, Ajit and Krishna used to play an awful lot of cricket together. Um, but, like, further down there as well, there's, like, there's other there's another commune further down there, which is Frog's Hollow. So, Millennials also, and the regions have got this, like, there's quite a lot of, like, cooperative spaces. Like, there's a few co-ops in that area, a few co-ops around there as well. And So, I think, like, the idea of a socialist politics being, like, making sense in these regions is, is like, it, I think there is a socialist common sense in, in all people. But I think the idea, like, the way that the urban subject is has been constructed is quite different to the way the rural subject has been constructed and like the way you'd talk about gentrification in inner city Brisbane would be really different to the way you'd talk about it in Mullaney even though the actual process of there being like all this excess money that can't possibly produce more dishwashers to be sold because there's really enough dishwashers being sold. So we've got to put it somewhere. So why don't we put it into a building on land? Okay, let, the city's full up. Let's go to the to like to the periphery next. Like I think that process is is driving the same kind of like housing boom in both these spaces, but it isn't. I don't think you'd be able to talk about it in the same way. Hmm. I wonder, like. Yeah, would you – I mean, how would you door knock, say, like someone who's really, you know, a cult person? Is there a way of getting past this the cult stuff? Like, I had one once, so I door knock her and I'm like, oh, um, have you thought about voting for us? And she's like, oh, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. I legally cannot vote. No, sorry, I religiously cannot vote. Yeah. I've like had, I'm prohibited by God from voting. I had one of those too, but I think she might have been lying. <laughs> like she really didn't look at all like a Jehovah's Witness. But, but they don't. <laughs> but she um, clearly, like it was, a. I actually admire, if it was a lie, I was. I admired her. It was like, it's an ironclad excuse <laughs> to make a doorknocker go away. Because I think, you know, in some ways, what you were saying before, Deck, is about the, um, you know, the different ways these rural and urban subjects are constructed. Like it just struck me that, and and the and the the presence of cooperative spaces in regional towns, it kind of struck me that, in a way, like 
in the regions, even though there's less socialist, like overt socialist politics there, you're sort of working from, in some ways, a, a good base because people are like perhaps less alienated in those contexts. Like there is more of a common feeling um, and there's that that ability to construct, I guess, solidarity between people because they kind of already know each other and, and already like live together and under very similar circumstances. In a way, like the cults and sects is a perverted expression of that or it's, you know, people, um, religious leaders or whoever have opportunistically like, you know, thrived in the space. But there's no real reason why, you know, if we can win why fucking we, one we, nation we voters in the inner city. Like, a good socialist cult in the region. Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah. There's a sense in which, like, here it was like, oh, like, I'm alienated. So I go in search of, a, like, a movement to be part of that makes the city less alienating and mm. less kind of atomizing. Especially, like, if you you sometimes you might live in a share house with people you don't know or you don't get on with that well. Um, and then to some extent you go and become a socialist and you meet comrades and that kind of, like, you, um, yeah, you kind of become part of a movement and that gives you kind of more sense of belonging to the area where you're kind of doing it. We should pitch that to, for, like, new volleys. Are you fucking sick of your housemates? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just on the the topic of, um, like, solidarity that you can kind of find uh, within the regional communities and the way, like, communities can come together um, in a way that maybe is a a little bit different in some ways to how we experience, like, the alienation of living in a city. Um, When the Cyclone Debbie in 2017 uh, actually came through, um, the regional town that I'm from back in 2017, um, it was pretty like heavily devastated by that, um, by really, really huge floods. And um, quite an amazing thing kind of came out of it um, and came to be known as It Takes a Town as this kind of uh, initiative that the community like fully got behind just and sort of self-organized because there was this sense of, you know, kind of being a bit of a bit of a backwater that, um, you know, people in the area didn't expect to get much help basically and in the end we um the town didn't really receive much funding or support at all um but it was declared like a natural disaster zone um but so what the community did did instead is kind of all get behind this you know concept that was community organized that um organized via like um facebook groups that just kind of sprung up where we all just sort of chipped in and i saw this happening like um kind of a bit from afar but um, one of the particular things was you would come into the town and you would see that there was this particular public space set up where people had donated, like in particular, like children's clothing and shoes and things like that for um, like families who had who had lost everything in the floods. Um, and I think the community also came together and like set up a database of like some skills that people had that they could offer to other people and um you know, it kind of uh, continued on after the recovery and after people had um, tried to help each other recover from the crisis. And it's actually still going on now where like there's young people in the town who are offering skills like help, helping elderly residents like with their computer skills. And like it's sort of just become this ongoing project of like the community coming together and helping each other just kind of sprung out of that that natural disaster, um, which I think, yeah, was was one of those moments where it's like, yeah, well, like you know those elements of kind of like communality and um and the community's kind of self-sustaining is is already there um and just kind of happening organically which yeah it really gave me a lot of hope to see that the interesting thing as well about that is that it's kind of a classic um kind of late capitalist emergence where these sort of as you say like in a way quite nice and inspiring moments happen because the state is completely fucking these regional areas in the ass like just no like there's no care there's no state support it's just like yeah I mean it's neoliberalism right it's like the community is expected to step in and you know take up what the state you know isn't doing but then this like the elected officials get to go on tv once Mm. it's happened and be like look at these uh you know brave locals coming together yeah isn't that great this is what our town is all about no money yeah (laughs) yeah i've actually just got a little note here from from the article that um i kind of i had to refresh my memory because it it doesn't feel like it was that long ago but um one of the local organizers who was um kind of in charge of the project said um you know it was initially sprung out uh as just a way to kind of um help 
uh, families and just kind of like as a bit of a charity project and it was actually underway before the flood happened and coincidentally it was meant to be launched on the day the flood occurred and then it just kind of became this thing that kind of um yeah formed out of the flood recovery response and then just continued on to kind of um, help support the community and was entirely um, community driven which mm. which I thought was pretty cool so maybe one if one were to like begin trying to campaign in those areas maybe one you know the, the first step is kind of politicizing those experiences yeah the foundations are, are already there I reckon yeah because I think you know maybe I'm not sure whether people think about it in those terms but you know we there's a there's definitely an opportunity there to to foster a righteous anger around the way that um governments have historically treated regional and rural areas like we always talk about you know in, in our particular brand of left politics is cultivating a common enemy uh which in the city i think it's yeah it's quite um maybe often quite viscerally felt in terms of high rises going up in terms of you know rents going up um and parks you know giving giving way to shopping centers and apartment buildings uh but yeah as you know we've maybe in the in the regional areas it's more of a, a lack of um support rather than a these things kind of yeah encroaching on the space the way it happens in the city yeah i think like you you see see it a lot in the kind of like the right-wing discourse of like catter and stuff like that but like so much of like the regions have just been completely forgotten about in australia and like you know the inner city latte sipper and stuff like it's like that that has landed and worked so well is because both in the suburbs and in the regions the city is like it does function as this other where all where all the good stuff happens and we just get completely forgotten about. There's no jobs. Mm. Everything's bullshit. So, yeah. I guess that's where you end up with this discourse where, like, yeah, that's definitely happened. But then also, like, the because the inner cities tend to uh, be more left-leaning and vote for more left-leaning candidates, it's very easy just to be like, oh, yeah, like the inner city latte-sipping elitists who all vote for the Greens and stuff. I still remember uh, during the 2017 state election when the Courier Mail did this cursed feature, extremely just like classic Courier Mail, though. They um, Turns out there's a, a suburb in Townsville called West End and they went to the Townsville West End and then to the Brisbane West End and asked all the locals what they thought about Adani. <laughs> you know, shocking. Uh, the views would shock everybody. But, yeah, like it, it's obviously – so I think – there's for conservative politics there is a an obvious benefit in playing those groups off yeah, against each much. other and i think that's like in order to to build that common like to build the constituency i think you need to look at like the constituency in the inner city who is engaging in this this like left politics is the sort of people who who can't because the the urban realm's been disinvested from in a way so that all the jobs that we once would have had in like manufacturing just don't exist anymore um and manufacturing like, manufacturing super, super interesting in the history of capital because, like, capital put factories in the city at first, despite it being more expensive because of the excess population. Like, it wasn't, like, coming to the city for for trading reasons or something like that. It was because of the extra control it gave you over labour. You could, you know, you could fire your whole factory and replace it again tomorrow. And that's that's, like, one of the, like, the, the spatial concentration of people is what makes, what gives capital control over labour. Um, but I think what what's what's happened over, you know, over neoliberalism is as capital has disinvested from the core and not just, like, by that I don't mean by the, from the core of cities, I mean from the, from the, like, the global core and invested into the global periphery in terms of, like, China and stuff like that, that's happened that that's mirrored at a, at a like a finer scale of this massive disinvestment from from the the regions of Australia where like they used to be relatively sizable towns relatively sizable infrastructure funds and stuff like that but increasingly mechanization has meant that there's much less people required to 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 work a farm or to to mine a mine so there's less jobs and in the city we've been able to turn to this very bullshit um service economy and riding uber bikes and shit like that whereas in the country they haven't even got those kind of benefits that come from agglomeration to turn to like the just like the bullshit economy is concentrated in the city that seems like kind of a big part of it and and not even just bullshit like i think like baristering and stuff like Mm -hmm. that like this this service economy like everyone whose job is made by by making some rich cunt's life better like Mm -hmm. 
which is so many people, like most of the jobs I've had have been like at heart about being able to provide something for someone with more money than me. (laughs) Yeah. Like it kind of seems to me like that's, so in terms of, yeah, like what we've been kind of talking about, um, like the city, I think has this, yeah, this, um, issue of like housing and rent, which is a lot less affordable than it used to be. And, um, you're kind of more reliant on, uh, you know, private enterprise to be able to live. And then, yeah, the nature of the economy especially seems very different. Like the kind of the bullshit economy that David Graeber likes to talk about, where it's like these kind of make work jobs or these kind of office and like admin jobs. There's been this huge expansion of um, admin jobs and different types of jobs that just exist to seem to just exist to check boxes. And it's unclear, like, if they're really producing anything meaningful at all. Mm. Um, but they are jobs and you need to get paid to do them and they're concentrated in the city, it seems to me. Well, yeah, I think the discourse around work, like how that changes between urban and rural areas is quite interesting. Like you only ever really hear it reported that people in regional areas just want jobs. And like quite possibly that's true. If you don't have a job, you probably just want any job. Um, especially if, you know, you live in a place that ha- used to have jobs, which are now gone. Um, and so I feel like there's like maybe deliberately it's been kind of um, made very difficult to talk, to, to make critiques of work to those populations. Like I think even, you know, the Greens for better or for worse like our policy platform is to introduce like a lot of you know good steady jobs for regional areas um and that is also i think to some extent everyone else's policy platform oh sure sure definitely yeah yeah. Yeah. but i mean i think you know despite the fact that i think many of us in the greens actually have like deep-seated critiques of of work and jobs um but there's no real space at the moment to make those arguments to economically depressed regional towns (laughs) yeah i guess if it's split between like you know unemployment's pretty high in regional towns and then it's not as high in the cities but then we've got a lot of jobs that aren't real jobs that we don't like want to have to do that probably nobody should have to do Mm. um yeah Yeah, there's definitely um an interesting tension there and just to touch on what you said joe like around um this idea of like oh like work is shit and like we should you know like (laughs) be campaigning on stuff like you know four-day work week and and reducing the amount of time we have to spend um at work and then versus like the fact that there really are like thousands of people in these regional communities who um you know the unemployment rate is so high and there's a real need for that Mm. Um, but I think I can only speak for kind of the town that I'm from but like I think um, one of the aspects of these like interesting communal alternative um, like groups and communities is that there is this sense of like even though people are struggling um, there's this sense that you know people are resistant to the idea of just a standard kind of corporate office job and people um uh, are sort of searching and exploring ways to um, experience a lifestyle of like a bit more leisure and a bit more like um, focused on the creative arts and the sorts of things that actually make, you know, life enjoyable. Um, but I think that the downside of that is, you know, it's it's not sustainable because of the society mm-hmm. we live in and the fact that um, it is a big struggle for a lot of people. But I think there's also like this kind of... Um, understanding um and you know i I sometimes talk deridedly about hippie hippies and the people i kind of grew up with but (laughs) there's definitely this understanding of um you know the fact that we do need to be you know living in more connected ways and and um you know appreciating leisure and and being out and about in um yeah in in nature as well i mean it's a thing i i just realized though that the cults in your hometown at least one is literally a job creator, like the water, the, the water shop people. Oh, absolutely. It's like, like 50% of the local economy. That's kind of the ultimate bullshit job, right? Just selling magic selling, water. Selling blessed water. Something I really noticed. They're onto something. Yeah. Um, working, like, working regionally is that people are much more willing to acknowledge that working itself is kind of shit. Like, I think in yeah. the city, like, so many people are like, oh, yeah, I love my job. That's so true, actually. Whereas, like, I think in the country, and I think a lot of it is to do with, like, the nature of the work done. Like, like a lot of it is outdoors. It's hot. 
you get hurt every now and again. Like, not seriously hurt, but you just fucking, you know, nail your thumb or something. Like, and I think there is, like, it's much easier to, like, it, it is much easier to make that, like, fuck work argument because at mm. least people have, like, they know that working is actually bullshit. Like, mm. it, it's actually not fun. It just needs to be done. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, like, uh, Max often talks about how, like, I, in an ideal world, how what a good and interesting idea it would be to trial a UBI among former coal miners, like among basically, you know, those ta- North Queensland towns that have been completely fucked by the end of the mining boom. Um, and to like frame it as kind of like, look, you played like a super important role in this country's economy for, you know, 10 years uh, and now it's time for you to be like paid back, basically, um, because there's a whole. I mean, there's a question there about like dignity and and that kind of thing, which I think is maybe a, a slightly separate discussion. But yeah, like there is, especially because I don't think anyone's hopefully no one's like trying to make the argument that coal mining is like a spiritually fulfilling job or like would say I love my job as as a miner. Um, you know, it is kind of like it's grueling work. Uh, but yeah, like there is that, there's that kind of triangulation between, yeah, like these working class now economically depressed communities and yeah, the, the need to sort of, um, yeah, advance a socialist politics there where, uh, yeah, I think something like a UBI trial could fit in quite easily and nicely. Yeah, I think it, like particularly because where we have had a, like a successful socialist politics in Australia is like, is it? Far up north, where what's the name of the town? I'm drawing a blank. Is the one communist in yeah town Fred school? Patterson? Yeah, Fred Patterson. Yeah. Um, and like, and so that was like, oh, who stood up for like Italian banana farmers or something? Cane cane cutters, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, so like, there is there's a long history of there being really successful like regional socialist politics. Um, to some extent, it's a kind of modern phenomenon that that is much harder to think about now, like. Gladstone? Is that... Further north. He was born in Gladstone. I'm reading his Wikipedia article. Hell yeah. I'm going to have to delete... Uh, no, no, no. Herbert? No. That's no. what we do Bowen. on this podcast. Bowen. Bowen. Yeah. Fucking Bowen. <laughs> um, well, I did a bit of a, a deep dive into Bob Catter the other day, just thinking about this, and he's like... I just went and like read his website and a bunch of his public statements was just like, you know, what does Bob Catter want me to know that he's all about? Um... For those of you listening who don't immediately know who that is, um, if you remember, there was a, a a meme clip of him from a while back. One which, of the best. <laughs> truly the best of all time. time. <laughs> See him talking about, uh, what is it? It's all once every three months, someone gets torn apart by a crocodile. Spe- I won't be spending any time on it. Yeah, that <laughs> no, one. Yeah. He, so he starts <laughs> off talking about same-sex marriage, I think. He's like, yeah, it was, it was, blossoms uh, bloom. It was... Uh, Regards to the equal marriage clip aside, yeah, yeah, we should just cut it in because it's glorious. I mean, you know, people are entitled to their sexual proclivities, you know. I mean, let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned, you know. But I ain't spending any time on it because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. Which is incredible. Um, but he's such an interesting guy. Like he, well, because he's the only professed socialist in Australian political agrar- life, right? Like, I mean, I believe he isn't. You know, I didn't find anything about socialism on his website. I have to say, <laughs> he, he was in favour of a mixed economy. Yeah, but he still like describes his politics as agrarian socialist, right? I, like I did a bit of a look into him, and I did not find him using that phrase. Mm, that's upsetting. But, he's, but he is firmly against what he did say, and he said, "Look, I." He says. Look, I left the Liberal Party because I'm sick of this economic rationality and the free market. So, yeah, like, he's against the free market. He's against economic rationality. He's firmly, he's broadly in favour of protectionism. And that's one of the big things that he kind of, his website has a very kind of... He's to the left of the Labour Party on so much. Uh, yeah, like, that broadly seems correct. Like, he's against all the privatisations. Um, and he's against, and he's a classic kind of, like, conservative populist type you know he's he's not happy about privatizations and like you know rich people kind of selling themselves public property and then having a laugh um and yeah he's like very much a protectionist on various um like north queensland industries and is very much wants to 
make stuff in Australia. He was just recently um, kind of doing the rounds for, um, he was posed in a Grim Reaper costume. Yes, that's right. To call attention to the death of the Australian uh, car manufacturing industry, which I don't know much about, but I feel that he successfully called attention to it. Yeah, I wish like politicians like on the left would pull stunts like that, honestly. Especially from minor parties, right? Like, he he looked badass as hell. Like, if if his scythe prop wasn't so fucking poxy and it was it was like this like really poxy plastic thing but if it wasn't he would have looked like the fucking incarnation of hell like <laughs> risen in the flesh to destroy he got a lot more shit for it than i thought he deserved he looked that awesome. was a very reasonable like that's what he's there to do and that's why do you think he keeps getting re-elected as an independent yeah because he's willing to like he gets like like North Korea style primary votes, right? He's yeah, like incredibly he popular. <laughs> it's like seventy four percent. Yeah, because people in Kennedy would see it and they're like, "Oh, he's taking his job seriously." And like, he has a long list on his website of just like his stuff that I've done. Like, oh, here's all the victories. Like, here's a comprehensive list of all the victories I won in the last parliament. Uh, he takes like personal credit for getting rid of Julia Gillard <laughs> in order to protect the Australian cattle industry. Um, but like, which is a pretty mm. maybe maybe slightly a slightly big claim. Yeah, um, and he is like, but like he's definitely a conservative. Um, like there was this like there was a bit of stuff about like Judeo Christian values, and like he you know he doesn't want. He wants immigrants to, like, share Australian values. He's obviously opposed to gay marriage because he is a homophobe. Like, um, you know, and it's very, like, to some extent, very deliberately casting himself in this, like, right, this conservative populist uh, model. Um, There's, like, I don't know, I think there's a real kind of cult of authenticity about some of these guys where they're like, oh, we live in the country, so we're more, we're real Australians and the... 90% 90% of Australians that don't live in far north Queensland are fake Australians. I mean, that's what uh, Hanson trades on as well, despite being, as far as I know, basically from Ipswich. There's something really interesting going on because Australia has always been, like, as a as a settler nation, has always been, like, deeply, deeply urban. Like, you know, like, Sydney is, Sydney is like, the, one of the most urban places in the world and, like, you know, it took a really long time for Australia to, like, have much population at all outside the urban centres, but it's never been a significant amount. And now it's still one of the most urban populations in the world. And yet our national myth is like Bob Cadron and the Kubra. Like that is absolutely like our, the image of that, of self that we try to project to the world and like that the world is happy to understand us as as well. Like, you know, I saw some like American lefties like joking around about Steve Irwin today? Like, oh my God, do not our culture, not your costume. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, so there's obviously something about this kind of thing that that really like works. And I I can't help but think it's because Australia's like Australia's economy has always been about like agricultural and mining exports being filtered through the cities where the ruling class live, um, and like granting huge amounts of like land to to the ruling class in order to like let them be the people who who benefit from firstly the stolen land of indigenous people but then like secondly the the labor of like the indentured kind of like colonial subjects and why that myth is so so important to us is is i think an interesting question Mm. maybe it's because we know all our cities kind of suck except for brisbane except for brisbane (laughs) the greatest city in the world and interestingly queensland i think is um one of the few states where more people live outside of brisbane than in it so perhaps we're one of the like the few states where like in new south wales more people live inside brisbane than outside of i don't think that quite adds up (laughs) (laughs) but like yeah i i I think there's definitely an anxiety there though about authenticity that i you know feel i don't know if i can quite articulate why this would be but yeah i guess it's it's, it kind of does uh, maybe echo that uh inner city latte sipping stereotype we were talking about before where you kind of feel like you know i'm engaging in politics from this very particular um subjectivity and yeah people in the regions are somehow more real than me um, or have like a more real experience of struggle. Uh, so I think, yeah, maybe like if we're talking about the strategic um, 
steps towards building coalitions of the regions, one step would be kind of overcoming that cultural cringe even among inner city lefties uh, to be like, no, you know, we, we do have solidarity with these people. We do share a common experience. Yeah, like, Step one, start a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like we it's have. A, it's, it's the Southwest and Greens. <laughs> to understand that, yeah, like to kind of, yeah, just get rid of that anxiety and be like, no, like nobody's like, like Bob Catter's position is still a very consciously constructed political position like he's very much like a performer he's like putting on a show of being like you know it's all it's all a masquerade like it's not any more like grounded in this like deep authenticity than anything else is nobody Mm. is more authentic than anyone else it's not a real idea (laughs) authenticity not real (laughs) heard it here first (laughs) one of the things i was (laughs) thinking about a lot back in the the brisbane's right to the city days was how like how alienated inner city people are from the from doing, and this is very country person talk, like real work. Because no one's ever fucking got their hands dirty and like mowed a fucking lawn, had to cut down a tree and cut fucking tree. Like just like done shit work before. Like no one's ever had to do that. And like when they do, they all love it as well. Like they're terrible at it, but they like, they all don't know how to use their shovels, but they try really hard and they like go home being like, wow, what a great day. <laughs> um, and it's great. <laughs> and I think like, there is this huge amount of, like, very alienated, like, left-wing young people with all this energy who would love to go and help a left-wing project in the country and, like, do some real fucking work on some ground, like, on some actual earth and see the world look physically different afterwards. And I think there is space to cultivate a relationship where, in the city, we can't produce any of the resources we need to continue our own existence. Like, you know, food is obviously not something that we can, like, just do enough of in the city in any meaningful sense to sustain our population or, you know, building material or any of these other requirements. So, like, developing that relationship by going to the country and being like, oh, yeah, look, we'll we'll do up this land and, like, do the part of, like, starting an avocado plantation. Like, if, you know, every, like, you know, few months we can get a truck of avocados when we send up our next batch of, like, young kids to bloody, you know... <laughs> clean up <laughs> i'm a huge fan of the idea of a uh, job guarantee just in general but i mean specifically like in my town i mean um the unemployment rate is so high but like if there was a job guarantee like it would keep so many people in the town as well like and then that kind of flows on right like if there was more opportunities like for example to access like tafe or university um in the town that i was from and there was something like a job guarantee that would kind of you know mean that there was a sustainable way for me to um be paid um <laughs> then i there's um a lot more of a chance that i probably would have stuck around rather than moving to the city and i think um you know flowing on from that if more young people are kind of sticking around and if there's more um like you know investment in things like that then i i wouldn't be surprised if more sorts of these sorts of interesting political projects could springboard from that um i definitely consider yeah moving back home and starting a avocado farm <laughs> mm. um, i mean what, sorry, what kind on. of jobs do you reckon that should be guaranteed oh um i think the government should guarantee a job for everyone who who wants one i mean there's so much like opportunity for work that needs to be done in regional towns like the one i'm from like you know for example the the train line that kind of connects um my town to various parts of uh regional new south wales and to um some like larger centers uh has been abandoned for like 20 years and you know there's so much opportunity like to actually invest in more local infrastructure, um, like get the trains off and running again. There's been like community campaigns about it, but it's basically just like being forgotten as like a backwater of, you know, we don't need to invest in this part of the world. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's there's so much that, yeah, could be done um, in that part of the world and so many ways that like young people could be encouraged to kind of stick around rather than having this sense of like oh we we have to get out like the only way we're going to have any opportunities is if we just get out of here because there's like nothing Mm. um we often talk about how um most academics would be happier working in the fields (laughs) 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 Uh, without sounding you know maoist about it (laughs) Mm. um there uh i wish max was here because he could tell the story probably better than me but he um, wrote his uh, history on his thesis on the Indonesian Communist Party and um, this particular like section of it. And um, the the there was ba- it was basically like inner city lefty students who did reading groups for like many years. 
And um, after a while, they decided they were going to like move their reading groups into the countryside and like you know educate the peasants about Lenin or whatever. And they went out there and um, yeah, they were just like yeah, they like they educated us much more than we like they had much more to tell us than we had to tell them. And I don't know if that's specifically um, quite the case here. Like I said, I don't you know know whether it's actually useful to think about people in the country as having like some kind of special advanced knowledge that people in the city could never understand but yeah I guess breaking down those um barriers of 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 like thinking about you know who has the knowledge who has the expertise who's educating who um is really important yeah I guess I'm just yeah like just thinking about authenticity I guess that is related to like the lack of kind of physical work there's I think a part of your brain that kind of wants to do physical labor um and as if you live in the city you don't get much chance to do it um yeah like i think that's just kind of what you were saying before like some of the right to the city stuff that um declan and i did which did involve like actually digging in the ground and things like that um yeah so i don't know i think i was talking to declan kind of um a while back about how the ultimate dream of our generation seems to be to just like be a subsistence farmer yeah <laughs> just to like own a patch of ground somewhere and just like raise your own uh, crops basically and be completely to some like be more or less self-sufficient i feel That's- like i've had so many like friends who just kind of burn out of white collar work and mm. they're like you know do it i want to become a manual laborer <laughs> that's the only way i'm ever going to feel fulfilled in life <laughs> which is also obviously a fiction, but I think it's a real thing. Yeah, and, like, uh, I just, like, because I, I, I don't know if you remember this conversation, but, like, I was just saying, like, like, I mean, first, you can't be self-sufficient to some extent, and, like, it seems weird that even that kind of very uh, simple dream of, like, literally, like, being a subsistence farmer, the thing that most people were for most of history, um, is now completely kind of out of the question like it'd be really hard to practically go about like figuring out how you could do that Mm. you'd need to spend a lifetime of work in the inner city to get the money to buy land and even then you'd have to deal with climate change Mm. Mm. i think one of the interesting things to do with the city in the region that probably needs to be thought of is the way like like in a in a kind of like socialist world the the slowing down of both these spaces um I started thinking of this, Eva, when you were talking about, like, the, the old train lines and stuff like that. And, when, like, this very slow movement of goods was superseded by, like, the much faster truck travel. Um, and so, like, there's no room to invest in this. Like, obviously superior in terms of its capacity to move a lot of goods, like, cheaply, but it's it doesn't move it as quickly. And how quickly we need to move goods now. And in the city as well, like, the, so much of, like, what's, what's pushing us into the cities is this ability to communicate more quickly with people and meet more quickly. Um, and have conversations more quickly with each other. Um, so, like, how to slow down both these spaces and, and to, like, provide an infrastructure that allows for a generally, like, slow existence is one that I think is a worth like a worthwhile note to end on. Mm, yeah, very true. Um, and, yeah, I guess my only kind of final thought is, yeah, I just, like, I think that has been, to some extent, um, a weakness of kind of the, the new, new left, um, is that it hasn't been as strong on how are we going to reach these people uh, outside the kind of main cities where our main kind of bases of support are. And it's something that I think needs to be thought through more. And it's something that I think there is a lot of potential for growth in. Yeah. Well, I think um, there's a lot of misconception around, yeah, like what the purpose of left-wing movements are and if, if you can reach those people. I mean, I think even... Um, there's even a misconception around what kind of politics are in the inner city, actually. Like, I remember talking to the uh, Labor candidate for the GAB Award at the recent um, council elections and pointing out that um, that in in Griffith and the, during the federal campaign, the Greens, you know, we got a huge swing and we, most of those votes we actually shifted from right-wing minor parties, not from, from Labor, which, as it turned out, was why we didn't win the seat. But anyway, um, and she was just completely bewildered by it. Like, she did not get it. She was just like, oh but there aren't any one nation voters in the city. And I was like, yes, there fucking are. (laughs) That's bizarre. I know. So, I mean, but that's, you know, that's labor. That's why they're kind of on a losing track. But um, yeah, I reckon like that is probably a a common misconception. That's such a basic fact to not know about like the 
board that you're running for as a political candidate mm. is to no there's like a mix of voters everywhere like there's a i mean like like even in the most like left-wing districts you'll still get a 10 percent of very like right-wing voters and even the most like right-wing districts you'll still get 10 percent of very left-wing vote. like that's not these places aren't all one thing or the other that's mm. ridiculous but that's totally how i mean talking a little bit to her or like hearing how she talked to people about um, in particular the Labour's stance on the Adani mine, they do see it in those terms. They would, she would just say things like, um, Queensland is such a divided state. You know, you have places like the inner city here in West End where people hate the Adani mine and then you have North Queensland where people love it. And it's like, yeah, that's true to some, like very, if you're making it in like broad brushstrokes, that's true. But that also gets rid of like a whole lot of nuance. And you're also just boxing both those electorates into like, this is what you think and this is what you think. And now I'm going to sort of cater to what I see as like the most basic uh, common denominator in each electorate rather than actually trying to change anyone's mind or like think outside the box of those particular politics. <laughs> but, you know, we could go. <laughs> I, the Labour Party now, are not very good. I've now fulfilled our constitutional requirement to bash the Labour Party on every episode. <laughs> so I think We're we can. Bad, folks. <laughs> um, in conclusion, uh, you can actually buy uh, Floods releasing a new product. Uh, it's Empowered Water. You can get it from our online store. We're all going to meditate over it. It's going to have very powerful socialist energy. Yeah. One sip and you too will hate the Labour Party as much as we do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and only $59.99 a bottle. Yeah. Very reasonable, folks. Get on it. <laughs> all right. Does that is that about done? All right. Cool. Thanks, guys. We'll... Uh, have another podcast for you soon, I hope. <laughs> Thanks. See you next time. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.